Okay, so there's an issue here, and that's that the first time I recorded this, I didn't say what the name of the freaking podcast was. And so now I have to say that this is Unstandardized English, a podcast where we are seeking justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. All right, now on with the intro that I already recorded. So uh, this one sort of came out of out of the blue. I This person I'd been... Um, you know, following her work for a while, and I uh, didn't think to speak to her, and then I just messaged her yesterday, and I was like, you want to come on the pod? And she's like, yes, great. I'll get to her in a second, though. So um, the funny thing is, when you all of these are spaced out in the, in the release schedule, right? Everything is over two weeks apart, so the fact that I record a bunch in a, in a short period of time doesn't really change anything on what actually comes out, right? It's funny. Anyway... I'm recording all of these at a really stressful part of my life, but it's like good stress potentially. Like, uh, you know, I've mentioned all this, but like, yeah, I'm in the process of doing edits on my book, but that's not stressful. It's just something that has to get done. I've got these two background journal and um, whatever projects that I have to finish in the next two weeks that, you know, they're just taking up time, but I said I would do them. So I got to do them. Um, and then I'm doing a lot of dissertation edits to me, you know, this final round here, the dissertation edits is, this is really it because I do have to defend, but that's one day I got to prepare for that. But that's like a, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's a different type of thing. Like, like spending the time and bring, you know, to me, the hardest thing is always birthing brand new words, you know, words that didn't exist before. Right. Editing is not easy, but, you know, you, you're just sort of smoothing well what's there. And, and I've done a lot of the restructuring that I need to do. It helps my dissertation is pretty short, but I also I see these 500 page dissertations and I'm just like, that's why it took nine years. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying I don't have the time and the patience. I don't have the patience. I do not have the patience. I commend everybody who did that. I am not as strong as the people who did that. Um, I'm trying to be done. Uh, and I'm also looking around for, for, for different, you know, what I'm going to do after I finish, you know, what, what's the next stage in my life going to be? Yeah, the book is there, but I, I don't want the rest of my life to be the same and trying to figure out those potential opportunities. I've got a couple right now. And by the time you read this, I will have probably figured it. Sorry. Well, by the time you hear this, I probably will have figured it out, but just to know, like the, the feeling of it is, is rather intense, you know? It's very intense, and I feel like by the time I get to April, I'll be able to breathe, but I'm recording this on March 14th, and I can't breathe yet, so, whew, it's a lot, it's a lot. A couple of things, um, I've met some more people in my new podcast network, Connected, you should all listen to all of the shows, and... Uh, you know, I'm going to try to arrange some collaborations with them throughout the summer. Um, in previous years, you know, I would always end the season around Memorial Day because I was just busy and I had a lot of stuff to do and I wanted to do over the summer. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take breaks this, this time, you know, I, I, if without having school hanging over me, like I'm going to have to do minor dissertation edits before July, but it's not nearly as much as other stuff and there's no pressure. Um, I don't know what that's going to be like. I've been working full time and being in school for four years. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I'm not complaining about my life, but I almost won't even know what to do with myself. If I don't have, you know, a dissertation to write or before that, a dissertation proposal or before that, uh, you know, comps and before that, homework. Uh, and, you know, choosing, like, I really could, I'm just trying to think, if I had just been, you know, like most folks... I don't think I would have had, had written any articles by now. The way that my program is mostly, for, it's for people who are working full time. It's, it's designed that way. So there's no guarantee that I needed to, to publish beforehand, um, especially because most people in my program aren't looking for tenure track jobs. And I'm not saying that I am either, but whatever. Uh, so you don't have to publish. You're just learning things so you can go back and be a better whatever it is that you're doing. A lot of the people are staying in their previous jobs or they're getting promotions, right? So it's not the, for everybody else, it's not quite the same thing. I'm looking for something new, but that's just because of the job that I'm trying to do things that are different from. Um, 
And I could have just sort of not stressed myself, you know, even like, like it, it didn't help that we got a dog and then had a baby during all this, but that was, you know, um, I'm just wondering how much easier it would have been if I'd just sort of taken it easy. You know, if I'd been more like some of the people I know who um, wanted to take their time. I say that, I know, it just sounds like I'm being a jerk. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying, like, uh, I didn't have to stress myself out as much as I did. But now, now that I'm almost done, like, again, by the time you listen to this, if you're listening to this when it comes out or in the week after it comes out, I will be under three weeks away. No, I don't even know. When is this coming out? Uh, I have the next one is then, and then I have one in April, and then I did the fourth one, which is mid-April. So this is beginning of May. My dissertation defense is next week. <laughs> in fact, if you listen to this the second week it came out, it, it will have happened. So yeah, uh, it's uh, it's coming down to the end there for me in real life, even though I'm recording this a while ago. And so I, I don't even know what it'll be like to have my breath back, you know? And as part of me wonders, will I be able to, to just continue to motivate myself without this intense amount of pressure I put on myself? I, I do, I do kind of need self-motivation. But um, I think I've got enough interesting things going on between the book and everything that that I uh, will be able to continue to be, you know, compelling in some way. So anyway, on to the episode then. Um, there's a Patreon in the show notes, if you are interested in donating, uh, please consider doing so. Uh, and this episode is with Rachel Elizabeth Weisler, Dr. Rachel Elizabeth Weisler, who uh, is, a, she'll explain it to you, but she's an African-American English scholar. She really digs into uh, the way that we, and you know what I mean by we, talk and the way people perceive the way that we talk. And of course she had, not of course, but she also adds a little bit of analysis about gender to that, that uh, I find fascinating. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation um, from someone who is legitimately like doctoral holding uh, expert in the way us black folks talk in our scene. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. So welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. You all knew that that was happening. Um, anyway, uh, I am here with Dr. Rachel Elizabeth Weisler, and she's going to tell you about a whole lot of things that she's been working on. And uh, yeah, I'm going to have her introduce herself, and we'll go from there. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hoping everything sounds good. I'm so grateful. Um, yeah, so I'm currently a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Oregon, and I work across uh, the linguistics department in the speech perception, perception and production lab, specifically in the psychology department, in the developmental social neuroscience lab specifically, and then I'm an affiliate with Black Studies, and I also teach a course cross-listed with Black Studies and Linguistics, that's Language and Power. So that's what I'm up to currently at the university. That's I'm just sort of like I said to you, I'm cornering the market on the sort of very small uh, world of Oregon language speech perception people. Like I just like a significant percentage of my guests in the last six months will have been from this little corner of the world. So I just think that, that, I mean, it's not really surprising because when I talk to one person, then I get to know that people, but still, it's just sort of funny. Um, anyway, so can you tell me, I mean, what you were saying to me yesterday, right? Um, a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the things that I know what SPP does um, and the people on the show know what it does now because they've heard it. But for specifically you, what you've looked at, because I know I introduced you in the introduction when I was recorded by myself, um, you know, as sort of someone who's really spent a lot of time sort of thinking about puzzling over and then examining African-American English, right? So I, it's funny because yesterday someone asked me, someone who's not a language teacher, um, but knows that I do this sort of thing, 
asked me about like, oh, well, you know, are we, call, are we calling it African-American language or calling it African-American English, you know, and, and that's a whole debate that I don't, it's, it's, I'm, whatever. Uh, but the interesting part is the languaging and, and uh, the people involved. So can you tell me a little bit about what you've looked at with regard to African-American English? Definitely. So the, the languaging that you speak of, that, that makes me excited to, to think about, um, because African-American English is the most well-studied minoritized variety of English um, in the United States, especially. So there's a lot that we know or a lot that we have come to accept. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's still so much that we don't know and so much more that we need to probe. So I think one of the big ones um, is what is it within the speech signal that's cueing blackness? What is it within the acoustic signal that lets us know they're hearing a black person? And we, you know, we have these great previous studies <clears throat> from John Bob, for example, um, and all of these ones that tell us, you know, within one word, we have uh, survey evidence and we have neurophysiological evidence. So EEG, um, seeing brains uh, showing different uh, 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 responses that, um, we're hearing something different depending on if we're hearing someone use African-American English versus a standardized American version. And so people have gone on and run with that, right? Um, but then what I uh, have seen as I've gone through some of my work and some other folks are seeing it too, is that it's not so black and white. You can't just use standardized forms and suddenly be heard as a white person. You're going to be heard as a black person. Um, Maybe you'll be heard differently than how you're heard as a um, if you're speaking African American English. So, in some research that I've done, I've shown that um, one language variety, so standardized American English, um, does get cognitively processed differently depending if it's spoken by a white person or a black person. And then separately from that, one black person can be perceived differently, cognitively processed differently, depending on the variety of language that they employ. So. Again, we need to be thinking more fine-grained about what does it mean within the signal. And so when you ask what I'm doing in the speech perception production lab at Oregon, I'm currently working to take out these different pieces of what is it within the speech signal. So I'm currently low-pass filtering audio. What that means is that when I'm talking like this, and I might say, hey, how you're doing? But I might take out those words so it'll sound like, <laughs> and you only have the melody there. So I'm having, there's you know tools that allow us to, um, uh, take out the words so that we only have the melody left. And um, I want to take those uh, audio and then ask participants again, can you identify the race of this person? And so then that gives us a better idea of, is there something within that melodic, prosodic intonation signal um, when we don't have the syntax or the phonetics uh, to help us there? And then I have some other stuff I could talk about, about emotion within the speech signal and then intersectionality, blackness and emotion um, within the speech signal. We can talk about that later, but that's probably what I'm what I'm looking at. What is cueing blackness to listeners um, and perceivers? So it's interesting that you um, refer to it as the melody, because um, I feel like what a lot of people tend to refer to that more. What is that? I guess prosody, right? Is that quite yeah. the same? Yeah, because but I think that for people who aren't in the language space, melody makes more sense. People know what that means, you know, and I think that that's an important thing. What we were talking about before I pressed the recording button about making it understandable to other people, you know, because um, when you say, explain that to somebody, you know, people know exactly what you're talking about when you mean the melody, right? Um, not that the word prosody is all that hard to understand. You, you just say that's what it means. But, uh, you know, that's just it's interesting to think that our, our inclination is towards jargon when it doesn't need to be. Uh, and well, that's a separate point, but, um, and you know, cause I've been doing some of the stuff I was writing about, and again, this isn't my own research or anything. It's just stuff I'm reading about the, I don't remember where it was out of, but they were talking about accents and, and, you know, when people are using the same words exactly, um, and how there's some part of it that's automatic, but some part of it really is like a decision that's happening. They may, they may not be you know, actively choosing, you know, well, I guess the question, let me back up here. What, what is it that we, we would call something in between a like pre-planned decision and something that's completely automatic? Like some, you know, that sort of space in between, because I find that that is often 
what is hard for people to to move away from. When something's completely automatic, sometimes there's not that much you can do about it. But when something is a pre-planned decision, people know you can do things differently. But we get this, like you said, black and white of like, if it's automatic and there's nothing you can do about it, then people are like, well, forget it. Which I think is the way people misunderstand or interpret things like implicit bias, right? They're like, well, it's completely automatic, so whatever, nothing to do about it. I don't know. Um, it's like, that's not quite okay. Uh, wait a second there. Uh, but on the other hand, there is clearly something happening very quickly. Um, and that space, I think, is really interesting. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just rambling here, but I find that that to be interesting in terms of the way people are perceived. So, I mean, yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say that. So I actually just had my first social publication come out. Very exciting. And the um, Journal of Applied Linguistics, or the, the Inner Review of Applied Linguistics, excuse me. And um, I, in there, I talk a bit about this, how there's this slippery slope where um, we say, oh, these things are automatic and implicit biases, but in fact, so much is learned, right? Like we know, we learn that when we see a red light, we stop. When we see a green light, we go. A lot of um, our discrimination, so being able to discriminate colors so we can work and go through our life, we do the same thing with language. And so trying to reframe so people can harness that type of uh, understanding of discrimination and being able to understand that it's, it's not all implicit and we do have a role here and we do need to be held accountable um but like you said it's challenging because it is so quick it is so automatic and this is honestly what brought me into the psycholinguistic space even to begin with um i often also make it very clear to people uh, when they ask me i say you know i'm a sociolinguist i care about sociolinguistics i use psycholinguistic methods because i think that they're interesting and can fuel this these sociolinguistic questions that i have about how people are treated how people are treated immediately when you come into contact with them how much linguistic input does it take for you to make a whole bunch of decisions about them and um again psycholinguistic work is interesting particularly eeg and eye tracking which i'm most familiar with because you have these automatic responses that happen really fast um but they're automatic in response to a stimulus. And so trying to be able to discern, okay, we have the exact same words, we have the exact same uh, everything except for who's saying it or the language writing that's used. And we're seeing brain responses that are varying, eye responses that are varying, and we're not asking participants to do um, anything with their eyes or with their brains, obviously. Um, and so this is another window indicative to us of what's going on um, during processing and then how discrimination can be uh, uh, very clearly uh, a result of, of that. There's a study I was look, re, looking at that I used in my book that was talking about um, when they were, they, they gave sub participants, um, you know, like samples of people talking, right? And they tried to get people who's, Basically, we're saying the same words with the same, just everything. The only difference was that they had different faces, right? They have different races, right? And it wasn't just black and white. In fact, I think in this case, it was white and Asian. Um, and they talked about how, first of all, they all figured out what was being tested. So they had to do it a bunch of times <laughs> so because they were like, wait a second, you're trying to, you know, and they were like, which I just think that's funny. Um, but then, you know, they, they were breaking it up into, um, you know, like what they were hearing, which like wasn't all that different, but they were still classifying people differently because there was, they were just making a decision right after the automatic thing and, and uh, you know, understanding that sort of valley in between the two, I think is where it's, but the, I mean, the problem with that is there's nuance and it's complex. So people want it, want it to be one way or the other, but it's like, but it's not. <laughs> And that's where we, I mean, that's, I don't really blame anyone for wanting the simple answer. It's just that we must know by now it's not going to help anybody to try to give the simple answer. I think we're getting closer to that, recognizing that the work there is going to always, um, like if we, if we want to capture um, society and how it actually functions, we have to acknowledge the messiness. We have to account for that in our statistical models and whatever else you want to call it, because it's actually limiting and not reflective of the world. Um, when we are so um, trying to look for one simple answer in these experimental frames. Um, and I'll say that too, uh, when you're working within the experimental frame, it's going to be limiting and people need to be honest and open about that. Um, what you said about people uh, recognizing uh, what this task was about, and they had to do it a bunch of times. It reminded me of a, a project that I did where um, I used virtual eye tracking, but 
I also had participants take some surveys where they would listen to audio of different women saying um, just a, a generic passage in different varieties of English, and they would rate their familiarity um, and exposure to that kind of speaker. Um, and then I have them do a sociolinguistic interview with me. And I talked with my experimenters for a long time about what ordering do we want to do? We're going to be priming them in one way or another, depending whatever we start. And it's like, you kind of just got to make a decision and acknowledge that and leave alone and understand that there's always in these spaces when, when, we're, when we're creating an environment that's not reality, um, there's going to be some limitations there. But results from those things can give us some um, insight, which is uh, fascinating and what we're looking for, at least to get the ball rolling um, on some of these ideas that we're thinking about. Yeah, I think that this is interesting because like I'm impatient so i really just did some interviews for my dissertation um uh and i don't focus very well so i uh just was like no i'm just gonna interview these people semi-structured let's do it that way i just kind of want to see what their stories were but i know that like and not that i'm trying to do but like it, it's you know you can't really be predictor from from a handful of interviews not that, but that's not the goal of the qualitative research right so you know it's just sort of you're just trying to see what the stories are but like you know, if I think about that and I think about the process of racialization and how that's really context dependent, you know, so I wonder, you know, this is sort of new and compelling research and it's being done in this place and probably a couple others. But how are you going, not you, but how does one think about, OK, so how is that perception happening in a completely different context? You know, like how, you know, in the United States, you know, I'm racialized as black, but if I go to like Dominican Republic, I'm seen totally differently, right? Uh, you know, and then you wonder how are these same things mapping onto those places? Because you have to be really, really specific when you do an experiment. And the problem with that, which is not a bad thing, is how you get robust results. But on the problem with that is that like someone who is inclined to dismiss you will find a really quick way to dismiss you because well you know i don't live in that place so that doesn't apply to me so you know and you can't you know and then it takes a long time to do these things and to write about them and 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 then the people who are just inclined to be dismissive are and this is i don't i mean this is just sort of the, the nature of science but like it's um people who are inclined to be dismissive will always find a way especially when it's on issues like this and i don't really know what to do about that i'm just making a point no, it's, it's really hard to think about. I mean, I, I always vote for this is why we need more linguists. This is why in the education sphere, it's important to meet students, the experts. I always come in with like, this is a mutual situation where I'm learning from you, you're learning from me, you bring all of your knowledge to the classroom, which of course in the American English, American teaching, just like world that we live in, country that we live in, we um, are often told that there's these wrong ways to speak. And I say, no, right? Like, bring these here, write your papers about them because you're giving us knowledge that nobody else knows. And so the hope, right, is that we get more variation and then inform our theories of language. Um, it was interesting, too, what you said about depending where you go, how you'll be perceived. So, you know, already as a black biracial woman in the U.S., I get uh, perceived variably wherever I go here. Um, but I, I've spent some significant time in South Africa, and I get read along with my friends um, that are um, black, white, anything, we're American. We don't even get racialized because they have their own um, issues of uh, racialization, as we know, historically. Um, but a big part of that, I think, too, is once any of us open our mouths, language is suddenly related to our racialization there. Um, and so, yeah, just Americans will stop. We don't care what your skin color is. It's like, oh, that was pretty interesting, too. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, I haven't been to South Africa, although I've been to Southern Africa, was in Zimbabwe, but uh, I have not been to South Africa. And that's basically the same thing happened because we were Americans, right? Um, but then when I go to places where most people don't speak English at all, right, like when I lived in Asia, then me opening my mouth didn't necessarily quite do the same thing because the, the various accents of English first people they they all kind of mushed together for them. So then it was then the color came back in, but then it was much more like crayon colors. Like I am just if you if you use the crayon color, I'm brown, right? So then it was who are the people who are brown? And that could have there was I the things that people thought I was <laughs> when when I'm just like that's ridiculous. But like when you think about it, if you don't know, you don't know, 
right? And they weren't being rude to me or anything. It was a little weird, but it was, you know, it's much more culturally acceptable to just sort of guess where people are from there and have it not necessarily be like a racist thing. They were, you know, people thought I was from Bangladesh, which that's not what I would assume for myself <laughs> or, or Vietnam, which like, again, like that seems silly, but you know, they're just thinking here is where people are browner than here. So just, you're just, you're from somewhere else. And then when they found out I was American, then they were like, Oh, you're a soldier. And I'm like, no, but, but part of that's my build. Right. You know? So <laughs> like that was a the whole thing. Then, I, because then, then the racism came in because then, well, you can't be a teacher. You know, which now, of course, the whole point of being a te- the teacher and the soldier thing isn't all that different the way the colonialism. But anyway, um, so I just thought that, I just think that that's interesting, but I'm not getting off topic of my own stuff. Um, so you've talked really, you know, you're telling me about sort of the way you've analyzed sort of the angry black woman and, and those tropes. And, and, you know, is there like a way that is it the same thing that people can pick out race and gender that quickly? I mean, I guess I would assume it'd probably be even faster for gender, but or express gender. I know gender is a whole bunch of things, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, like, yeah. So, like, bringing that into the conversation, I think, is something that adds a whole other wrinkle to it. I guess it really does. Um, so, yeah, what you were speaking to earlier of you know, depending how we're perceived, and then also what our own backgrounds are, that also really uh, disrupts the experimental frame and even the theoretical um, understandings of language and linguistics and variation, because it often assumes single identity, which none of us are. We all have multiple identities. And so as I think about um, my work on angry black women, so looking at perception of race and perception of emotion, um, we're looking at a lot of things there. We're looking at um, multiplicity of gender. We're looking at um, the fact that not all genders are perceived the same. You know, a lot of the literature on gender and language uh, says, oh, women are like this, and here are these things that make up a woman's speech. We know we're talking about white women, <laughs> and even in studies, again, I mean, this is the age-old issue of, you know, when we talk about participants and we don't specify um, that we're talking about white, blah, 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 right, and then all of a sudden we're making these claims about everybody um, based on a white population, which is not accurate, and so, um, this one first study that I did was based off of um, Kim and Sumner's work, um, looking at um, if a angry, non-semantically emotional word was spoken in an angry prosier melody. So I love doing the pineapple. So pineapple versus pineapple. So obviously same word, but prosodically sounds different. One sounds angry, one sounds happy. Um, and looking to see um, if participants could. Uh, identify correctly the um, race of the speaker and also the emotion that's employed. Some listeners too might be thinking like, okay, well, what about, like I've been talking a lot about um, what is it within the speech signal that cues blackness? I think there's also lots of questions of what cues emotion, what cues happiness, what cues anger. And if you read these journal articles and happen to get into their methodological weeds, you will see that they said we asked them to read it happy and angry. <laughs> they don't say anything else. Um, but I do think that this is really interesting. And so further um, in my career, like, you know, as I'm thinking about these further projects, I am curious, is there something within the speech signal that's cueing us to happiness versus anger? Does it have to do with the use of your pitch and things like this? And I've done some acoustic measures of um, the stimuli that I used for my studies, for example. And we do see that um, um, the African-American speaker from this one study woman um, had lower pitch um, in her angry speech, lower than the white woman. But again, we're looking at single speakers here, so we don't necessarily want to make assumptions about language varieties based on single speakers there. Um, but anyway, the results of that study showed some very interesting things. Two things. Two, the two first, what I'd say is that the black voice was most consistently um identified correctly as black when it was in the angry condition. And the white voice was most consistently uh, chosen as correctly white when it was in the happy condition. And I say it very specifically like that because people also really struggled on face value to even get the correct racial identification. And so I have lots of thoughts about that on the side, thinking about, I don't see race, I don't hear race. So if they hear a black person, they just go default, they go to a normativity. Oh, it's white, white, white. I don't know. That's that's probably what it is, right? Um, 
which again, coming back to why I think the psycholinguistic work is interesting, we're thinking about these automatic responses to input when we're not asking people to write things down um, and just see where their eyes look or how their brain responds. Um, that gives us insights into these variations. And so, um, again, anyway, so very, very interesting survey study, which I then followed with a um, eye tracking study where I did something sort of similar. And then I actually used audio visual integration. So had images of black and white women along with angry and happy sentences and looked to see where people looked. Um, and I could talk a little more about that because I also incorporated um, experience measures because that's another question. Oh, I don't want to go too off on a tangent. The last thing I'll say here is that people often ask in these kinds of studies, did the black people respond differently than the white people? And I have two answers for that. The first one is we live in a society where standardized American English is considered um, the gold standard, and it's not just thought by white people. This is thought by everybody. And so because of that, I never have separated my um, results into do black people respond differently than white people because we are all socialized the same. So that's my argument there. But secondly, I do think it's important to think about experience and experience variation resulting in different responses. So if you spend more time with black people or around black people, maybe you will have less biased responses than someone that doesn't, maybe. And so I've started trying to poke into how can we hone and quantify experience. You know, it's, that, that sort of reminds me, I keep going back to the implicit thing because it's just this big, but it's like one of the things that came out of the implicit bias tests was that people said even black people responded that way. And uh, it's like, yeah, because we get the same images that everybody else does. And where do you think, that, what, especially someone who's going to be part of a study <laughs> is going to be someone who's getting the same images. You know, maybe there's someone who lives in a, a field where there's nobody else, but then they're not probably going to be in the study. So, you know, um, and I, uh, one of the things I've pointed out when I teach my like whiteness classes to people and the talks I give is not because I, I like to move away from sort of thinking about intentional harm that doesn't mean there isn't plenty. It's just that, like, the people who are... Now, here we go on a tangent. Even the people doing what we would see as intentional harm mostly don't think they're doing harm. Because few people are... Like, there's, there's only, like, a few people with, like, such a horrible personality disorder that they're trying to harm people for the sake of harming people. Like, it's just, like, that you know, like, sadistic people. There's not that many people like that. They just think that the, what they're doing is good. Or they don't think about other people. They just think that what they're doing for the family is better. Fine. And they make it good. I just, like, that's just humans. Whatever. But, uh, still, I think this idea of people who are... And this word... It's heavy, but well-meaning, uh, is, is really where my focus is. Like my, my interviews and the classes have been with people who want to do better, you know, and sometimes they do need guidance. I think that there is a strain of people who are on the left who think that this, we, there's no point in trying to teach people. And I'm just like, there's too many of them to just give up. So what is, what, you know, <laughs> uh, if we didn't need people to work with us, then, then we would have been out of this a long time ago. So, uh, but my point is that uh, one of the things I talk about with why it's, it can be really harmful in like super homogenous spaces, particularly homogenous white spaces, but it can also in terms of class or whatever, is not just the experience you get around you. It's experiences you don't get, right? Because like, yeah, okay, I don't necessarily think – now, a place like New York is a little different because I really do think like the, the fact that most people here use public transportation all the time really does make things a little bit different because you aren't as sequestered from people. You know, like you just see different people, right? On, you know, unless you're in a really weird part of New York, which very few people are, you see people from different groups. You go to, you, you're a Wall Street banker, you take the subway, you don't have a lot of money, you take the subway. But aside from a place like a New York, which obviously has its own many problems, uh, if you live in a really isolated place and then you drive everywhere and you don't have to see people who are different from you, uh, it's not that you are necessarily going to come up with horrible images of them. It's that you are subject only to the public pedagogy. 
See, it took me like eight minutes to make that point. But <laughs> I was just trying to get to the point that like, if you are separated from real people who are from these different groups, then the only image of them you have is what everyone has in the public. And that's the, the harmful images. Right now, of course, you could still have harmful things, you know, if you see someone and you or, and it also means that if you if you meet two black people and one of them does a bad thing, that's 50 percent of black people in your life. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's it's um, I think that obviously the issue there, of course, is what the public pedagogy is. But it's like if we're going to be subject to public pedagogy, that needs to be ameliorated by interpersonal experiences, but not in a way that those people have to just soak up your harm, which I've certainly dealt with being the only in a lot of places because the only thing they saw was TV. And then they're like, oh, let me teach. Let me ask him about it. So, um and so that's why I think about the you're talking about the experiences of people around you and that sort of thing is that it is. And I mean, especially we start from a young age, really beneficial just for the sake of you knowing different groups of people. One of the people in my study told me she thought that she was you know, better about these things because she did know some black people growing up. But then she realized because she's from she's from a college town and these were like professors kids. So that's a certain type of black person. And I'm not saying I'm not that type. Of, my parents aren't professors, but they're those type of people. So, you know, if the only black person you know is me, that's not necessarily the same thing as knowing a lot of black people. And I'm not saying that I'm like not black or not black enough or anything, but I'm a certain type of black person. Now, in recent years, since I've devoted my like scholarship to things, knowing just me would still be a little bit better than knowing just a random black person because I'm not going to let you get off the hook anymore. But still, it's... To the lack of variety, this this sort of the very narrow version of other groups that we get, partially just because there's only so much you can learn if you don't know people personally, and partially for harmful reasons. So that was a lot of things that I said. <laughs> I think that they're great things. Um, one of them reminds me of uh, so the book Talking College coming out from Dr. Andrew Hadley. Um, she again, we're talking about a college context, but she has this great. Um, a visual that looks at, you know, who are the black people that are showing up in this space? So it's like you have these kids that, you know, don't speak African-American English and really weren't around black people. You have people that like, that do speak it, um, but only in certain spaces. You have people that are speaking all the time. And I, there's the way that she encapsulated, you know, read the book, you'll get a better explanation than what I just gave. But um, I think she did a nice inclusion of all black people existing. So what you just said of, you know, you meet me, it might be not the best black person to meet, but people need this also diversity of understanding because it breaks the notion of the monolith. So I wanted to, to bring that in as well, um, because that perpetuating that isn't necessarily what we want either, uh, because we know how different black people are, not just how they show up in the world, but linguistically how they show up in the world as well, how we show up in the world. Um, the other thing you had mentioned was about, oh goodness, I lost it for No, but that's important because um, just the, the narrowness, I think, and I talk about this a lot in my own book, or early in the book when I'm talking about blackness. Most of the book isn't about blackness, but there's early sections where I'm writing both about my own experience. And I, 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 I like, this is going to sound wild, but uh, I, I make this, this comparison or this sort of result from like, you know, for a long time, unless you literally owned slaves, a lot of the time, the only time wealthy black, wealthy white people saw black people was like minstrel shows, right? That was like their experience. You know, I mean, you see servants around, but like if you actually, that, that was the experience they had was this sort of broad stereotypical version, right? And that's the, all they got. There was no, they weren't reading, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything else they knew. Um, and that's okay. So that's a hundred years ago. But then, like, is it that much better if you live in a town where there aren't any now? Right? Is it really all that much better? No, it's not literally that. But what? What do you see on TV? Right? What do you see in the movies? Right? Or in, or in music or something? Well, not music, but in reporting on music. Uh, that's how I, I, I sort of make the truly wild comparison to the way that when I was in Korea, the only thing they thought about me was that I was going to be like a basketball player. Right. And like, that's, it's, it's, it seems wild, but like, it makes sense in the paragraph that I do it because, you know, they have never met one. Right. And they have every, and this also shows why quote unquote positive stereotypes aren't great because 
First of all, even before you get into the race aspect, positive stereotypes imply a negative, right? So if one race is good at something, then some race is bad at something, right? You know, it's not just, it's not like you're just good and everyone else is okay. Like, no, if, if one race is good at something, some race is bad at something. Uh, but also that like, if you don't match that narrow vision, then you get like doubly shamed for it, right? Like for a long time, I was really unathletic and that's not true anymore, actually, but uh, you know when you step outside that box, then people will question, what, are you still part of that identity group? Right? I mean, I'm sure you've been through this to some extent. I, I, I'm not referring to athletics. I don't know anything about your athletic prowess. But uh, <laughs> just in terms of all of these things, you know, how can you be this, but also be that? Right? And that, to me, is it's it that, that's been the tension, and I know I'm lucky for that to have been the main tension in my life, but a lot of the time, the tension for me has been that, like not fitting into what people expected of what they thought I should be. Um, so I think that what you're speaking to, and, you know, I think language is a big part of that, you know, when you think about us being considered like articulate or whatever, um, and my coworker even said this today, not about me, um, she said it about someone who was black, but I don't think it was the same thing. It's just that I tense up when I hear the word articulate now, but I don't actually think she was doing that. She wasn't doing the, like, he's articulate and he's black. She meant, of all the people in the meeting, this person was particularly articulate, which is actually true. It's just like, I don't think, she, I, mean, I think she even knows he's black because he's like, we, we've been on like non-visual calls. So I don't, it really didn't apply, but I can't even hear that word now without tensing up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does, I think it totally applies. And I mean, I mean, we can think about this all the time, right? These individual words that now suddenly have these big, like lots of baggage that we bring on with them. Um, yeah, it's uh, articulate is a, is a funny, interesting one, but there are also so many other ways to talk about people. What you had said about, um, you know, this the, the positive stereotyping. I mean, we think about black people as you know the innovators, innovators of language, especially in America. And so we're seeing you know these continuous cycles of black people um, are innovative with language. It gets co-opted, it then gets called internet language and child language or teen slang, and then all of a sudden it's negative in this negative frame. It goes back to all these thoughts and notions of you know people love everything about about black people except black people right we love the language love the hair but don't love the people themselves um but what i often tell people or what um people often ask is like what do we do about it it's like well black people continue to innovate continue to find more words <laughs> continue to um on black twitter wherever they want to do it thinking of different ways that they can uh again re uh, back into the community, back into communities of practice of one another, because that, that, that innovation cannot be taken away, and it's pretty powerful. Um, the other thing I had forgotten earlier I wanted to say was um, when you were talking about uh, how do we, uh, everyone sort of showing up with their different varieties, and we end up in this standardized, minoritized, uh, uh, like against one another. Again, on the pedagogy side, something I would like to do with this is um, essentially making all students talk about like their language backgrounds to the extent that they're comfortable. But again, having everyone on the same platform, there's not a normative and then all of the variations from it. Everyone's coming in uniquely. And I try to make that clear. Also with educators that ask me, but if I want them to do well on their standardized tests, like what do I do? And like, this is what you do. You tell them, hey, we're going to use this code for this space because this is what's required over here. That doesn't make it any better or worse from the language and knowledge that you already bring to the table. Um, so again, trying to very intentionally put everything on the same playing field is a strategy that I think works really well. Gets more people invested and interested and then also makes students more likely to talk, more likely to want to investigate um, and be empowered at the end of the day, not just in their linguistics classrooms and beyond, but also their... Um, any work that they're doing. Well, we independently came up with the same idea. And it's in my book, too. But um, where I talk about, because people always say, well, well, the tests, I don't know. What am I going to do about the tests? And I'm just like, all right, all right, relax. Like, uh, <laughs> my, my thought is like, first of all, whatever we're doing now isn't working with the tests. So if you're worried about the tests, maybe doing something different will work better. Because whatever we're doing now is not doing the thing that it's supposed to do. If you, otherwise, you wouldn't be worried about it. So uh, 
I, it can't hurt is my point to try things differently. You know, e- like even, even my not caring about the test, like it, it can't possibly hurt. My thought is, can we make the students actually comfortable in these rooms? And I understand that there's a difference between that, you know, we don't want to be so relaxed that they can't do anything. But like, I don't think like people are not like that. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a few people like that, but most people, they do want to learn. They, it's just what, it's just what are they learning and how are they being seen and treated? And, and, um, you know, I think of the tests and I say, what if we thought of these tests as like, this is an obstacle we're going to overcome together. Here's a project. We're going to do these tests. And that's just a skill and you bring your gifts to this. And how can we use all of our languaging together to overcome this obstacle as a group project, as opposed to, you know, an individual silent competition. And it's a shame because, you know, we like to, people like to compare from country to country, which is also not useful. Um, But like, as bad as it is in the United States, like there's like there's some places where it's even worse on the test scale. <laughs> like you know, so um, I said this was the our, our episode I recorded before you, which will have come out the time before you, was with a woman from Finland, and of course Finland is seen as like the place for the education, and she's like, that's not really how it is. Like yeah, there's some things they do well, obviously, but like any any definitive statement you're going to make about education, education, one of the issues we have, and this is people think this is an American thing, but then you go to other countries, you're like, Oh wait, it's just a thing. Uh, is this sort of, we need to have this really definitive point, this, this, you know, end point, this period at the end of the sentence, but it's like, but that's not how it works. It's not how our brains work. So, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, I get it because it's hard to, to sit in the complexity, but, on the other hand, the complexity is where we actually live, so we might as well reflect that. That's you know the way I think. People say, "Well, what are we gonna? What do we teach them?" I don't know. I'm just like, okay, but what? But what we're doing now isn't working. So exactly. I mean, I think he put it on both sides. So it's like you have the test in the middle, the thing that's got to get done, and we have you on this one side, just saying like, okay, there's this. Uh, project that we need to overcome together you're probably never going to use these words again i certainly don't use many of these words um so that's like on the, the reality side of like we know we have to deal with it how to do it but on the other side too again i my research isn't specifically in this area but i'd be very curious and think important to like exit interview students and say like what kind of training would have been or yeah what kind of training or testing would have been most useful for you in x program because we all know nobody's going to say it was the GRE or the SAT. Um, but then actually, besides just hating on testing, it's more the like, what would actually be useful for you? And then maybe that's what we can do on the front end in the future. So again, we have to deal with the here and now and the reality of testing. Though again, University of Michigan just dropped the GRE. So many schools are dropping the GRE during COVID. They dropped it because you couldn't get there. But I mean, like, so if people were still to get, get into graduate programs because of that, why would we need um, them later? I don't know. I do know for the LSAT, they had, um, you know, like someone was watching you on your like screen while you were taking it. So there, you know, there are these ways in which testing does reign supreme in a lot of ways. But of course, you know, the, the, the realities of all of it. Um, so I think working on both sides, if we actually care about our education and success, could actually really benefit us. The GRE, so the funny thing is that when I got my master's, which is 10 years ago now, before I was st- I was in Korea when I was about to apply, right? And I knew I was coming home, which is why I, I was applying. And there's only one place you could take the GRE in Korea at the time, which Korea is not large. So it's not like you can't get there. It's, it's, the entire country is the size of Indiana. Like you can get there. Uh, but uh, I found out that a lot of the schools I wanted to apply to didn't need it. So I I just didn't go take the test. But then I had already told my school I was going that day. So I just didn't, just didn't go, just didn't leave my apartment. So they didn't see me. So they didn't think that, they didn't think that I, uh, you know, skipped out on the test. So I just stayed in my apartment for like five hours, which is funny. But the thing about the GRE is that when I finally did have to take it for my doctoral program and they told me, we want you to give about, they said, look, we don't really care, but there's something about the state funding, whatever. Just get above a 50 percentile. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's okay, fine. Like, I can do that. <laughs> so I bought the book just to see what was on it. I'm like, why am I doing, why am I doing algebra? I, now, algebra, of all the higher maths, algebra was actually pretty interesting because of the deductive reasoning and all that. Um, 
you know, figuring things out from things that are missing. That like that algebra, I think, is is pretty interesting. But I just like I, the thing is, you do end up using math in in the doctoral program. However, I'm not sure that testing me on algebra was going to prepare me for statistics. <laughs> now, should they test me on statistics? No, because I hadn't taken it before. So what was the testing going to do, right? But like, I I get now. Forget about the GRE itself. All these schools, especially doctoral programs, there, of course, is a pretty high rate of people not finishing, right? But I feel like they're always looking at the wrong thing as far as what it is. Now, it is hard to get data on people who leave things because they usually don't want to talk to you, right? No one's like, I left and it's great. Yeah, there's the people who are just like, I quit my program and I'm happy about it. I'm like, okay, all right, fine. Uh, But there's not that many of them who are doing that. And uh, it's like, I'm just doing my thing all over the place, but that's fine. Uh, I feel like people listen to my show to hear me just talk about random nonsense. But, you know, if people didn't want to hear me talk about random nonsense, they wouldn't listen to my show. Uh, but there was one of the studies that really influenced me was a study from 2008. It was a language study, and I was just starting my program. And they actually told me try to find studies in the last 10 years. And this was just at the at the it was 2008, so and I started in 2018, so it was right inside of it. If it had been one year earlier, they wouldn't let me use it. Um, and it was actually looking at uh, community education programs, and they tracked down students who left. I was like, oh. Because that's what I was originally going to work on was like a really boring, like, how can I increase attendance at community education programs? Because that's what I used to do was I used to be a manager of a language program. And uh, they found out that the students left because the teachers were kind of condescending to them. And all the teachers were white and all the students. Now, you know, the study didn't mention that all the teachers were white, but they were. Uh, And the study didn't mention that all the students were black or people of color, but then they said they're from Somalia. I'm like, well, okay. So, <laughs> like, you didn't mention the race, but you did mention the race. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and these are very, this is Minnesota, so this is a very, Minnesota nice thing. These are very nice people, but they all were really condescending. And so, like, my point is, these people left for reasons that people didn't expect them to leave. Everyone assumed they left because, like, they had childcare or some issues, and I'm sure that happened to some of them, right? Uh, but it's a free program, so that's going to happen. But it's like, and I say all of this to get back to the doctoral programs, which is not what we were talking about, but that's okay, uh, to think about the fact that a lot of these programs are looking at the wrong thing when they think about why people leave. You know, I don't want to speak. I have not left, so I cannot say why people leave, because I did not. But uh, I, you know, I think about... The people I know who've left, and it's sometimes it's logistical stuff, but a lot of the time it's like maybe they were a wrong fit for the program, but then how are you determining who's the right fit for the program, right? It's not, is it really the GRE? You know, I don't think a lot of the programs are doing all of their things based on the GRE, but a lot of the time it's it's like a comfort match, a support match, and then there's people where it just isn't the right time in their life, and they were going because they were pressured to go by their families or whatever, and they didn't know what else to do, and it's just, it wasn't, which is never going to work. Right. But how can you identify that beforehand? Because you can't really do doctoral work until you do doctoral work. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think two job prospects, I think people get really tired and frustrated. And then again, like you said about community support, if you don't have faculty around um, that are supporting you in the way that you need to be mutually supported, you're you're not going to you're going to have a lot of trouble um as you described also funding especially when we're talking about doctoral programs um people need to be really honest i think from the very beginning and i think to the hierarchies as well people can be afraid to talk to their advisors or even talk to anyone at any other level um and um i mean i feel very lucky at university of michigan everyone was treated uh like a uh, like a colleague no matter what level that you that you were at and i certainly want to emulate that in my future future work we should all be doing that but not only because it's a nice thing to do but also because when there is conflict it can be brought um to a space of understanding so i I think you're right that yeah like like the evidence shows that it's difficult to um garner an understanding of why people leave but i think also letting people know at the outset this might not be for you we are here to listen we want to know why so we can make this better and then also like help you on your way as you go off to to do something else Uh, but it's not framed that way right especially with academia it's that Academia is the only way. We're only just now 
you know, getting one colloquium a year for, look at these people outside of the academy that came from this program and have XYZ job, which is a wonderful thing. But we really need to be leading more um, with that. And then also with, you know, your advisor fit might not be the best match. So let's try to get you um, with somebody else, you know, be open and honest about that too. But of course, that again, relies on money, relies on programs. I think we're being very clear of how all, all of the holes in the system um, that academia tries to hold up. You know, one of the things, and this is one of my least favorite things in the world, but there's this Facebook group that I'm in. And I've mentioned this on my podcast before. Um, and it's for people who are like going through doctoral programs, but it's not explicitly for black people, but it's mostly black people in the group, right? And sometimes it's like people post when they graduate, celebration, you know, that sort of thing. Or people ask for advice, right? And let me tell you, oh my God, I hate this. I don't know why I stay in there. I stay in there because I'm going to finish and I want to put my celebration thing in there and then I'm going to leave. That's literally, I realize now that's the only reason I'm in there. But is it PhD? Is it that Facebook group that's just called PhD? No, it's called Finished, but it's the PH. The, 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 I think I'm yeah, 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 yeah. But all the advice in there is so rigid. Everyone asking for advice. The asking is whatever. People ask for advice, but everyone responding says like, everyone does things this way. You should do things this way. Do things this way. And I'm just like, now I get they're doing that because they were taught that, right? And I realized a lot of them are in certain programs. Let's just say where getting a doctorate is really just about following steps, and that's how they all end up in, you know, if you just follow the steps to be a doctor, it doesn't necessarily, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to devalue them. I'm, it's quite the opposite. I think that there's, their programs are devaluing them and it's limiting them and it leaves them in a place where all they really know how to do is follow the steps that they followed. And, you know, what I think the value of, of sort of academic work is like you're trying to answer some real questions. Is the question is the answer going to be definitive? Maybe not, which is hard for people to grapple with sometimes when they go into these programs. Uh, but like, you know, one of the findings in my dissertation is that like mo almost everyone who, who I interviewed was a academic type person that wasn't necessarily intentional but that's who i know so that's who responded uh and the nature of academia at its best is that it requires inquiry like inquiry like you need to really puzzle over things now you can obviously do inquiry in very bad ways but if you are inclined to things that I think are valuable and you add the inquiry, then it can be a really great intersection. If you are inclined to do some awful stuff and you add inquiry, well, well, you know. Uh, but also I think people who are doing what I think are awful aren't really doing inquiry. They're just answering questions that have already been answered. They're just re reifying things. Like all, every time there's a new buzzword, I think you're just answering the same question. And the question is, what's wrong with these black people? But, you know, uh, yes, I mean, every, also, that's, like, every time a buzzword comes out, it's like, like the, that, it's the answer to the question of what's wrong with the black people or the poor people or the disabled people or whatever the thing is. Um, and... You know, sometimes it happens unintentionally. Sometimes people come out with things and that's not what they intended, but that's how it gets taken up. You know, like I don't think, for example, when Carol Dweck was looking at growth mindset, it was intended to be like corporate thing talking about how people are lazy if they don't have it. Right. She was just really looking at it in a psychological way. But, you know, I'm on my own planet here. I don't know where I am. No, no, this is, this is so, so good. I'm thinking about... Um, Again, I, I, interesting. I just I feel like I don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about pedagogy, and it is something that's really important to me. And so, um, when we're thinking about how do we actually do the important work and let it, you know, uh, actually get into the world, um, because as we know, journal articles aren't accessible often, or even the things that people are reaching to, or have an accessible language um, being used in it. Uh, I think from the pedagogy side, I often have my classes not write an essay unless they want to it's an option they could write a research paper if they want but i have them do a project of any kind so like i've gotten four projects so far in like 14 different formats so like from video essays to websites that they've created instagram uh slides um cut print art but my point with that is that you know wherever you're going to go in the world you're going to understand the value and importance of language and discrimination language and power how minoritized varieties and peoples are treated because that's relevant in every 
facet of the world um, in every language situation because when we're going to be talking about people, we're going to be talking about inherent dynamics and power that relate to language. And that is beneficial in every uh, every facet to have some knowledge about that. And so I often think when I give students projects where they can choose their medium, choose the languages or language varieties of focus, um, one, we're able to incorporate the broader theoretical things that we're talking about within these specific examples, but two, it actually helps us further, you know, like flip their their name on, on its, or flip their, their concepts and ideologies on their head. Um, my favorite thing to do with students is to show them these two pictures of Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like one with Winnie the Pooh in his regular like red crop top and the other one with him in a suit. And I just show them to them with the word C-A-R-A-M-E-L next to both. And I say, hey, how do we pronounce the first one? And the whole class next to the one with the small shirt says caramel. And then when you see Winnie the Pooh with the suit, I say, how about this? And you say, caramel. And I say, no, how did you know that? I didn't tell you to do that. Why are we super, why are we subscribing variations in our vocal tract to these different pictures? But again, how we are socialized, how we understand the world to be, a lot of this is innate. I put quotes there because really it's ingrained, right? Uh, and again, learned and unlearned. So just as we can, we've learned a lot of this and then we have automatic responses, like knowing caramel versus caramel, we can very easily unlearn that. And so through these sort of small uh, movements, I think they can be actually very impactful uh, in actually getting this um, work and understanding and more equity um, broadly in the world. But what if it's caramel? Caramel? Who says that? Please tell me. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what I even say. I don't even know. Caramel. Caramel. No, I say caramel. Okay, yeah. All right. Perfect. Uh, I don't even think about it. I don't, you know, I don't even see the thing I think about. You know, I I realize I eat it more than I say it, right? You know, I uh, just like, oh, I've never thought about that word out loud, right? I mean, I've heard about the, um, right? I know, I remember the, the the city high song from back in the day, and it was that was the three syllables, definitely. That was caramel. When it's talking about people's skin, it's always three caramel, uh, three syllables. So. Which Ooh, is a, I didn't think about that. Ooh, that's interesting. Someone needs to write about that. <laughs> I know, yeah, no, because like with the caramel skin. Nobody says caramel skin. I've never, no, nobody says caramel skin. Because that just, this sounds weird, right? It just sounds weird, right? As, we have to think about that a lot. Right. Because there's something sexy about caramel again. And so well, this is, you talk about the fanciness, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, maybe caramel skin would be like, you, you're insulting them. Right? You're just like, oh, you got caramel skin. It's like, oh, what what did you say? No, I mean caramel skin. Oh, okay. Right? You know. Um, which is funny because that's probably, if people were picking colors, kind of where we are on the paint, on the paint scale. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, but then how things were, you know, indexed and associated. So we think about the famous expensive uh, road in Los Angeles, Rodeo Drive. Right. But what if we call it a rodeo drive? Everyone's going to be very confused. We have so many understandings of rodeo, right? Um, and so then we, we think about that. Why are we adjusting? Is there intentional, unintentional adjusting for separation purposes? Um, there, there, there's so much to, to do there. But importantly, I, I like to to say this, these kinds of things, to say, like, like, look how arbitrary this is. We suddenly are changing our vowel, and now there's all of these social meanings behind it. Um, it was uh, another good example, right, is, um, like, the word the loo. If I say I actually use the loo, you're not just going to discern that I have to go to the bathroom. You're going to say, okay, she's from this particular area. She might even like to drink tea with cream, and, like, she probably is really fancy because she's using this word. So all of the social meanings that can come into these very small amount of, uh, speech output um, is worth thinking about while also understanding um, that there are going to be nuances there too. So I think, you know, sometimes that can be superimposed saying like, look how much little speech input we get and how much information can be gleaned can then lead us potentially to that conversation and look at how little speech input we get. And now we know that this person is black, white, all these other things when we know that there's a whole bunch of other complicated um, factors to consider in there too. So I just wanted to put both of those on the table for us. And to sort of finish this off, what I find really interesting about the whole fancy and so forth is when I was younger, white people used to try to tell me that it was W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, Du Bois, when it's actually Du Bois. And I'm just like, see, you're trying to be fancy, but you don't even know anything about him. And of course, I screwed it up in explaining it. But because <laughs> anyway, I'm, I've made sure that I say it right now. 
right? But it's like, no, you're trying to tell me that it's it's this fancy way, quote unquote fancy, and you want to make sure that I am this uncultured person, quote unquote, who doesn't know. But it's like, but if you knew anything about him, you'd know that's not actually how it's pronounced. So it's interesting to think about what's fancy and what's not fancy when the most important thing is what's in certain things is like that one. In, in that case, there is a right answer. Like that, like that's just how his name is said. So it's just interesting to see in terms of like white, black and, and, and all of that stuff that uh, people sometimes think that they can put one over on people by pronouncing things correctly. Sometimes they're not even right. <laughs> they're not and fancy correlating to power, right. correlating to standard and standardization. Because that's essentially what's happening there. It just gets coded and semantic or bleached in some way, but we're still dealing with these the, uh, these concepts of normative language and standardized language versus not. And then people trying to correct people um, as, a, as a power tactic as well. Right. And I just, um, I really do enjoy correcting people on that one. Because I'm just like, so you don't really, you, yeah, you don't. You, it's a clap pack, though. That's different. Yeah. 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 Because I'm just like, you don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. Anyway. Uh, all right. Dr. Weisler, it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, I was glad that I was able to just sort of bring you on to have this conversation because I think that um, you're doing a really interesting work. And hopefully, if you, as you continue to do this and people continue to read it and, you know, Maybe. And, you know, you know how journals work, you know, chances are sometimes that these episodes get listened to by more people than journal articles get read by. But and that's not your fault. I'm sure it's true of my articles. Too. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that's why it's, I try to do this. I try to bring people on who I think are doing interesting work. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe people will really pay more attention to it. So uh, I was glad that I was able to have you for it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation, and um, I'll continue to follow what you're up to. I'm looking forward to it.